0: Every misfortune is to be subdued by patience. Virgil Welcome to this week's episode of Warfare, Advancement, and Revisionism. My name is Preston Floyd, and as always, I am your host. I'd like to thank you all for tuning in this week, and um, I hope you will enjoy this episode. If this is your first time, welcome. Uh, Please feel free to go back through our backlog. And if this is your uh, return experience, I hope you continue to listen as you have been doing. Uh, I don't have much feedback from the last episode just yet, uh, but this week we're going to go ahead and speak about the various Neolithic cultures that emerged in and around the Yangtze and Yellow Rivers after the abandonment of the old Paleolithic sites of northern China, after the climatic chaos of the Younger Dryas ending, and the emergence of a more stable, environment now uh, the name nanjuangto site that we discussed last week was abandoned around 7700 to about 7500 bc from that period to around 7000 bc we have not found large-scale sites home to any group practicing sedentarism or agriculture in the north of china or along the yellow or huanghei rivers uh excuse me the yellow or wanghe as it's pronounced in china Uh, however there is one tool culture that emerged and saw occupation begin around the time the Nanjuangto site disappeared Uh, and this is further to the south near the yangtze or changzhang river that culture is known as the pangto shan and it was first discovered in 1988 now the characters for this culture translates to uh chief To pang mountain shan so uh so chief pang mountain is the actual translation uh the character for pang in this case refers to a political state da pang or great pang that will exist in this area in the future Though the original, less formal version of the pang character was actually used as kind of an onomatopoeia for the banging of drums. And I should also point out that though uh, Peng To Shan was the first site found associated with these peoples, it is not the only one, nor was it actually the oldest, and we'll get into that shortly. But, as for that site itself, the dating for it is somewhat uh, debated. Like Nanjongto, it could have been used for a long stretch of time, abandoned, and then reoccupied. Though most papers I could find mention the agricultural phase beginning around 7,500. And there are a few that claim that it started earlier. I agree with the majority on this one. Um, it, for no other reason it just makes the most sense to me i haven't seen enough definitive evidence you know to make it o- older now it is located in the modern province of hunan which means south of the lake in this case lake Dongting. Um, this culture was extremely unlikely to be related to Nanjuangto. to uh, the pang shan region being about 700 miles or 1100 kilometers to the southwest of each other, if you could just fly in a direct line. Uh, They also specialized in the growing of wild rice as opposed to millet, not to mention other, you know, numerous other local plants that they would, like rice, attempt to domesticate. And some of them, they were much more successful than others. The sources i could find didn't make special mention of domesticated animals though from what i could understand is that pigs and dogs are all at Shan sites dogs through the entire period and pigs showing up a little later um, the final factor that i want to point to uh, these people being different uh, from nanjuangto is that their neolithic-esque bladelets are not made from stone they're bone and antler most of the stone hand tools continue to be made in a more late paleolithic fashion Uh, more hand choppers less composite with stone and wood things like that their pottery is also different all panto shan sites have very similar pottery globular bases with like little holes or loops on both sides for running things probably like ropes or vines through to help carrying and they have these stout wide necks also, another thing I should uh, point out, and I haven't really brought it up too much, but a lot of the pottery for most of these Neolithic groups are smoother, far, you know, far smoother on the outside than they are on the inside. Um, it's not going to hurt anything, you know, them being slightly um, kind of uh, pot marked and all that kind of stuff in the interior. But um, that's just something that's common, as far as I can tell, everywhere. Now, um, what was mentioned in the sources is that they were probably one of, if not the first group, to domesticate rice, or at least get close enough to modern strains to make it difficult to tell without DNA testing. Um, And if that's if DNA tests could be extracted, I should say. Um, Their homes are small, with very uneven circular floors that were dug into the ground. Their hearths were also very simple. Um, They kind of had some clay circles uh, built up, and then they would place grass and straw and things like that in the interior to kind of keep things going. Now, there are also examples of slightly larger rectangular structures with foundations built up with sand and dirt, but those are far less numerous. and they may have served a purpose outside of mere housing but there is no physical evidence showing what that purpose may have been uh we also have some evidence of their burial practices their dead were buried on the community's outskirts and not in any one place but instead around the perimeter um they also only had a small number of gray goods if they had any goods at all um, they might have like one or two tools and maybe some small type of ornament um this again isn't that unusual for a lot of neolithic sites especially in the early stages um and though we have mentioned a few groups that had more uh there were plenty of other groups that you know see limited or no grave goods i think a more interesting fact about these people is that they didn't bury their dead under their homes like the early neolithic in the middle east Um, I can't explain why, but I feel like this is a really significant difference. Also, there is evidence of these graves being used for secondary burials. Essentially, um, with them being opened up and after they're initially being dug and having people buried in them, they would dig them up again and add more people to the grave. Uh, This has also, as you can probably guess, made dating a little bit more challenging and the final point or interesting fact i would like to bring up is that this culture is associated with a few sites uh three to six major ones uh there were probably more that we haven't either located or you know they were you know lost to time and though Pengto Shen was the first site discovered it was not the largest that distinction belongs to a location called Bashidong. dong uh, and most Neolithic sites in modern southern China are around one hectare, which is 10,000 square meters, which is like uh, 11,960 square yards, which is about 2.5 acres. Pengto shan is double that, and Bashidong is uh, three times that, so it's three hectares, and uh, it's it's better preserved. Uh, around 100 sets of human remains have been found at Bashidan and around 20 at Pingtoshan. And their funerary practices were identical, but more structures at Baxidang had the longer, rectangular, above-ground variety. Uh, Bashidang may have even been occupied longer, and older examples of like transitionary tools between Paleolithic and Neolithic design have been found there um, though agricultural domestication uh, evidence appears around the exact same time between both sites Uh, their pottery is very similar though again bashidan has older examples that don't match a hundred percent with later styles Uh, that's given rise to the name for the paleolithic preceding the pangtoshan in the region being called the late bashidan all Pengto Shan sites appear within the modern Lijian or Li County in Hunan. And this county has an area of around uh, 2,075 kilometers, which is around 1,290 miles. Uh, now, Pengto Shan itself is abandoned around 6,000 or 6,100 BCE. Uh, but Bashidan will be occupied until after our next season starts, and we will go over those future developments then. The next emergent Neolithic cultures that we should talk about are the Peiligang and Sishan. Uh, the region that the Peiligang and Sishan sites occupy are about 420 miles. Or, I'm sorry, 425 miles or 684 kilometers north and slightly to the east of the Pengto Shan home region. The older site of Nanjuang is about 280 miles, or 450 kilometers to the northeast. And uh, for those measurements, I used a point that was kind of in the middle of the Pelegong Shan sites. Um, And as I talk about these two cultures, I think you'll understand why I did that. These two are very frequently tied together due to them adapting you know, the agricultural Neolithic lifestyles at around the same time. And they have similar material cultures and uh, also they're, they're fairly close to each other. And they probably had interactions between these two groups. Now, each of these occupied different sections of the Huanghe Yellow River system. Though the Seashon, as we'll see, don't really um, exist in the river system directly. They're kind of on the periphery of it. And the area where both of these sites can be found are within 90 miles or 140 kilometers of each other. And it's, again, very probable that these cultures were in direct contact. In fact, there are some that argue that they should be considered The same culture. But that's a minority opinion of specialists in the field and has been becoming less and less popular as time goes on. um, Though none deny that they were very closely linked to one another. So even those that say they're not related or they're not the same do admit that they definitely were in contact. Uh, Now, Sishan is north of the Yellow River and closer to the Nanjuangto site though Sishan itself is closer to the Taihang Mountains uh, these mountains serve as a border between the modern provinces of he- Hebei uh, which I talked about last week on Shanzi, whose name means west of the mountains uh, Sishan itself is located at the foothills entering these mountains but close to the plains of Hebei another one of those ectones we talk so much about when it comes to Neolithic locations Uh, Sishon's name means uh, magnetic mountain. If it isn't clear, that's obviously a modern name. Um, Now, dating for Sishon is very, very controversial and highly debated. Uh, This is because when the site was found and initially excavated in 1973, they didn't do a great job of labeling everything and systemically recording where and how deep artifacts were found so it's possible that the Neolithic agricultural layer for this site could be contemporary with Nanjuang but most likely it was more probably used as a campsite for a group of hunter-gatherers who adapted to a more sedentary lifestyle after the Nanjuang had location had been abandoned for you know a thousand to twelve hundred years earlier Um, I believe and I doubt I'm the only one, uh, that the Sishan was made up, again, of descendants of the Nanjuang To. Now, as for, uh, their artifacts and what makes them unique, their pottery tended to be a little bit more angular, uh, almost kind of like, um, like rectangles with openings at the top and they are very different in terms of pottery creation than uh, any of the other uh nearby neolithic sites or the ones we've talked about prior also um they domesticated millet like the nanjuang toe uh, but whereas the nanjuang toe were near kind of a marshy boggy area uh, these people do not seem to have relied on um, uh, kind of uh, water from a, a kind of a sitting source. It wasn't near a lake, it wasn't along a river. They appear to have relied heavily on rainfall uh, for watering their crops and things like that. Now what was being watered is another interesting fact about these people. Um, they, like to initially were heavily involved with the um, cultivation of uh, broom... Uh, excuse me, broomcorn millet, which is also sometimes referred to as proso millet. Um, however, they also appear to have branched out and begun to domesticate and then eventually... Uh, I guess, complete that process with another type of millet known as foxtail millet. Um, this is the uh, most widely grown millet species in Asia. Um, and it may have been better suited to the uh, kind of the dry farming, the farming that relies on, um, you know, the weather to water it as opposed to um, irrigation. Uh, it's a little bit more um suitable to that type of growing than maybe the broomcorn millet. But that is not to say they get rid of broomcorn. They're both grown uh, you know, fairly um regularly at the site uh, and will continue to be grown. Um now, the, the Shishan do not have as many sites as some of the other nearby cultures. Uh, as far as I could tell, the only sites of any real size for the Shishan uh, is uh, Shishan itself. And there was another one known as... Sorry, I'm looking through my notes. Um, uh, Beifude, or Beifudi. Um, now, but these sites were slightly larger than the, well, not slightly. They were a lot larger than the places that we've talked about in the south of China or what is modern China. Um, These, in some cases, uh, they controlled or at least used over, um, I believe it is, sorry, I'm going through my notes here. (laughs) Uh, Apologies, I lost my place. Uh, Yeah, so they had over in some places they had over five to ten uh hectares uh of used land now these were not all used for uh habitation they also had a large kind of area that was set aside for storage where they would kind of dig out holes and then they would store their crops kind of subterraneanly uh and you know uh keeping them um preserved in uh pottery things like that uh and there's almost a level of in like a massive scale uh i think they had in some cases over almost almost 500 uh storage pits uh that contained something like almost 50 or it was over 50,000 kilograms of remains um so you know, they were they were stocking food at a large scale, uh, and that probably definitely helped them kind of grow uh, and allowed them to um, probably focus a lot of their efforts on things like hunting and rearing pigs, which these uh, people also did. Pigs were a very large part of their um, domesticated foodstuff. Uh, also these people had uh sickles hand sickles they developed those independently Uh, they had these kind of uh, large uh kind of roughly serrated um stone uh sickles that they developed um now as for how long this site lasts well it will continue to last until our next season and we will get into that uh but the sea is very important because it is so central uh to what will become uh china uh they were probably the middlemen for a number of different groups not just the pelagon who we'll begin to talk about uh here in just a minute but uh in- this would include um other sites to their um to their, uh, north and to their east towards the coast uh and the the sea really seem to be open more than others uh but they they definitely had their own way of doing things i think you can tell by their pottery that they are um they're kind of standouts They they kind of do things their own way um i should also go ahead and say it and I'll, I'll reiterate it a little bit more when i get to the episode talking about like the the potential people groups in the area just who they might be the ancestors of uh but seashon uh region the region where the seashon are from is considered to kind of be the um possible or which is that great german word for homeland uh for the sino-tibetan language family um it's thought that, um, that this could be the home, I guess, or the original home of where uh, Chinese uh, language ancestry comes from. Uh, but more on that later. Uh, for now, though, let's go ahead and switch over to um, the Peligong. Now, the Peligong, uh, like the Sichan also practiced. Um, uh, millet agriculture, but they lived along, uh, the Luo River, uh, which is one of the major tributaries of the Yellow River, uh, and this is a little bit further to south of, uh, Shishan, uh, north of the, uh, of the, uh, Pengtoshan, um, and they have a number of sites, uh, they have well, um, well, they have a number of, um, sites that kind of outstripped both uh the pang toshan and the sishan uh there is pelagong itself but then you also have another site that's not all that far away known as Jihao, um and it is uh it is i guess south of the river uh, pelagong is north of that river uh and there are those that say the Jihao might be its own culture but um that's not a very widely accepted uh theory uh, if you look at their pottery and their tools they're very very similar um w- way more similar than say like something to the Pengto shan or even the sea shan uh they, they're they're far closer than anything else um but, like the Sichuan, the peligong people have this kind of large-scale uh, grinding operation. They have a lot of um, tools used to grind up the vast amounts of millet they're growing. They also have um, dogs, pigs, things like that. And, uh, yeah, some of those other sites I did find. Uh, there's uh, one called Shao-Li. Uh, Ego, Shigu, and uh, Shuiquan. Um, now, as for the breakdown of Pei Ligang itself, so from what I could gather, um, uh, Ligong is something like a Plum Hill, and uh, Pei is a very common name in China, a surname, uh, but I believe it's somehow related to clothing, a specific type of clothing. Now, I couldn't get a direct translation, and um, I... Couldn't really find a, a good explanation of what that translation is, but again, it should be obvious that this is a modern name and not associated with, or it wouldn't be something that these people associated with themselves. They probably had their own name for themselves and a name for where they were, uh, where they're living. Ah. Uh, now as there are a number of sites again for the Pei uh we have a little bit we have a lot more information about them at least um, at least wider examples uh, i think ji how itself um, has a lot more uh, animal remains so this could have been a site that they used possibly to um, Kind of uh, feed and water their animals more than their uh, maybe their place further up north at Uh These people also the millet they're um, they're using is uh, the original variety that was kind of initially domesticated. The broom corner uh the broom corn millet. Excuse me. Um, also the Gong, I think i was actually able to find some stuff about their cemeteries uh and they basically have separate cemeteries uh within which you know you can find a cluster of graves and there are probably a two to three cemetery plots uh with any given site uh they were kind of spread out uh this could have been something like uh kind of maybe a start of like a specific family's crypts um we'll talk about it more when we get to the episode on uh the slow process of uh urbanization uh and the creation of uh villages and towns and then the cities um but uh, you, you have to remember that um these people though they spoke the same languages they were probably all related in some way but they probably all had you know a family or a, a, again, we don't have much evidence of like a, a gender divide, but there were probably, you know, your main parents, uh, and they were starting this operation or this, uh, this new lifestyle with a cousin or a brother or a sister and their families. And then they were all kind of expanding out for there. um, But that's obviously a little bit of a supposition. Uh, Things like, yeah, we don't know that for sure. Um, Now, Pelagong, uh, unlike... uh, I didn't see anything mentioned about them possessing um, sickles that are exactly like the Seashon, but they do have their own. However, I did see special mention given to uh, the Pelagongs uh, adzes, which are like the, these are kind of the uh, the precursor to spades and hoes. Um, some of these were made with wood, but some were also made with stone. Um, uh, but uh, like um, other places in China, a lot of their Neolithic weaponry is bone and. Um, uh, you know, bone as opposed to stone. Uh, These people also, we have found examples of their um, needles. And because they're on the river, obviously they are more reliant on uh, fishing as well. Uh, So they have this extra set of, uh, or this extra source of food that the people at the Seashan sites do not have access to regularly and that may have been one of the things that they you know that they had maybe uh traded with each other uh which again it's very possible um you know that they are you know moving back and forth it's possible that maybe the sea had better sources of uh of um stone uh although the pelagon themselves are not far from another set of mountains uh Perhaps the sea were sharing their sickles, uh, or something along those lines, uh, who can say, um, uh, Pelagon also is notable. They have a, a few different tripods, um, which they have their built into their pottery. So they're, they're resting it above the ground. That's possible. They may have been stuffing fires underneath them to kind of, um, Heat their food. I didn't see that explicitly mentioned in the Cishan, um, uh source, but I did see their cross sections of their pottery, and no one. At least I didn't see it listed um, that the Seashan did not have that kind of innovation. At least initially, it's possibly developed it later, but their their pottery style does not change all that much. Uh, though it should be said that, um, I may be jumping the gun here, but, uh, kind of these standing, uh, pottery pieces with, um, tripods, these are a big motif in Chinese, uh, culture, at least in the early dynastic period, uh, giving someone a bowl on a tripod is sometimes considered, like, meant to confer some type of authority, Uh, And there are some, like, special large bronze ones that were built um, that it's kind of a mystery what happened to them. There's, like, nine or ten of them that play a big part in kind of the Chinese, (coughs) excuse me, mythos of, like, how their civilization developed. They're not mythological. This is actually, like, in the recorded uh, period, or at least semi-recorded. So that is something to think of as well um, another factor is that the pelagong uh spear points things like that arrowheads they are much narrower um, they're a lot thinner whereas the seashon they're a little bit more broad um, so there are differences there as well uh, and these people are almost completely contemporaneous with each other the Sichuan, uh the pelagong they they live in the region, um, kind of um, the, almost the exact same time period. I think uh, I think they're considered almost identical, and uh, we'll talk about that in our next episode or our, I'm sorry, our next season here. Um, they right now they're definitely agriculturalists from about six thousand five hundred on. Uh, And when we return, they'll last for another uh, half of the millennium, uh, all these sites. And then after that, they're replaced by something else, and we'll get into that then. Uh, But for now, though, there are two more kind of Neolithic cultures I want to talk about. Uh, One is the uh, Jinglonghua culture. Now, this one is far to the northeast in modern china it's almost to what is now the korean border uh, it is along the um, liao river uh, and if you're familiar with uh chinese geography there's a little peninsula that juts out to the southwest uh on the korean border this is known as the Liaodong dong peninsula as you can guess, the name of the river and the peninsula are very heavily related. And the Xionlongwa, uh was in that region. So it's kind of it's almost to the border of Korea, but it's also kind of in the Inner Mongolia kind of region as well. Um, and again, this is known as the Xionglongwa culture. Or maybe it's better uh, Zhilonghua. Uh, if there is anyone who knows Chinese, I'd be very appreciative of the help of kind of pronunciation for some of these. Now, uh, the Longhua, they are kind of out on their own. Uh, and as you'll probably know from history, um, kind of the Mongolian steppe area is kind of wild in relation to the rest of china or korea uh and the eurasian steppe and this border region uh you know kind of being on its own it's not surprising that there's only one kind of neolithic culture that arises in this area uh now these people like uh their neighbors to the southwest are millet farmers but they are also heavily involved in hunting and gathering Uh, they have no domesticated animals at least there's no evidence for domesticated animals though they did appear to sacrifice uh wild deer and uh boar or wild pig maybe uh in a burial site for one individual. This is a man, I think his uh his uh he was around, they guessed around 50 years of age. And this site uh is very interesting in that most of the burials that they have found um are men. I think that there's almost a two to one ratio of male burials versus female. Um, what that means, I have no idea. But all of the men um were, were fifty four or younger. There was no one that would be over sixty today. And the females all belong to um they they got to around their mid thirties. So not a whole, you know, lot of older individuals here. Uh I think they did find one or two adolescents you know they hadn't even reached like 15. um so we're, we're really we're really not sure what that means other than that maybe men you know merited burial or maybe there just was that big of a difference in the um ratio between you know, uh, men and women at this site, which I don't think would be possible for a sustainable society, but what do I know? Um, now, the these people also had um, pottery. However, there's uh, a very different style than what you see in the places to the south um, southwest. Um, the bases are all flat they kind of uh, go from there and then curve up almost to like a, a tulip opening up with like uh, ridged uh, lips. They didn't have any kind of loops or holes like that for carrying. Uh, these were almost just something you'd place on the ground and you might place them in a fire and just let it heat up the sides. It it would be kind of singed on the bottom for that. Um, but these people were also... Uh, Able to find and work on jade artifacts. Uh, They found a number of those um, at those locations. Um, Oh, another thing about the pottery I forgot is that they were, uh, they kind of had like almost a comb run through it to kind of create kind of like a line pattern, like a, you know, like if you think of like a hair comb combing your hair it's something like that was rubbed across um the body of the of the pottery vessels to create that pattern (laughs) so uh and this is something that you see later in other places but this is as far as i'm aware the oldest um example of this comb pattern um excuse me uh yeah so that's kind of that's kind of it for the um, zhang Longhua. uh from what i can gather for the name for this it's um it's kind of hard to translate directly but it's um it's kind of like the long prospering depression uh, and that's a geographical to feature although i have heard sometimes that that um wa, uh the way it's spelled could also mean a swamp or hollow so that might be a better name for it but um that's just kind of one of the things uh yeah you can you can look at for it um or one of the ways you can see it translated that's um you know, just something along those lines. Now, the Zhang, uh, or sorry, Jing or Zhang, I'm forgetting, I'm not sure quite, again, how it's pronounced. But the longhua are, um, they are a little bit later than the uh, Pelagong or Sishan cultures. They are, um, they start, or at least they begin practicing Neolithic lifestyle uh, around 6,200, give or take 100 years or so um and then they'll eventually go the way of uh, the dodo once uh, once we get past uh, our second or our next season here and I'll we'll, we'll talk about it at the end but they are beginning to form now the next culture to talk about is the Dadiwan now this is out in the far far west of China this is along um uh the I believe it's the Wei River out in the west bit of China. This is kind of like the historical boundary of like dynastic China before you get to uh I guess the passes and the deserts to get to Central Asia. Uh this is uh this was located in modern Gansu, but they also have a little bit of overlap with the Shanxi province, which again uh, um, which is where the Sishan are. The Sishan are on the um, kind of in the middle of that mountain where it crosses over, and the Daiduan are where Shanzi meets Gan um, Now, uh, this culture was found initially in 1974, uh, I'm sorry, 1975, and then they continued excavations there to about. 1984 so about nine years but then they've returned uh, a few times since then now this culture it's just beginning to form i'm not going to go into too much detail we'll we'll talk about these people later um in fact there are some people that argue that they don't even become neolithic until about 5,900, 5,800. Um, and it's fairly short lasting it only lasts for uh, at most 600 years Uh, and if it's not this point it's it's only around 400 years Um, but these people will develop their own art style they have some great looking kind of pottery that is not just for cooking they have like these almost like the body is going to be a pot but then it's kind of like got a head of like a human kind of carved into it and it's red and black where whereas a lot of these other um chinese cultures a lot of their pottery is not very colorful um there may be some dark reds but there's very little like painting on it so that is something that the um the died uh will kind of come up with uh but of course as their North Chinese Neolithic culture, they have access to millet, pig and dogs, um, and we'll g- again we'll dive in more to them the next time. Uh, now for the last of our Neolithic Chinese cultures, uh, this is the Huli. Um, now these people are towards the coast of China. Uh, I believe it's in um, uh, Shandong province. Uh, which this is, if you're, again, familiar with Chinese geography, this is on the other major Chinese peninsula, appropriately called the Shandong Peninsula, hence the name of the province. Now, uh, the Huli culture is right almost at the mouth of where the Yellow River enters into um, the sea, Uh, north of the shangdong peninsula Um, now this site was i believe found in the late 80s or early 90s i think 89 or 91 something in that range um these people um were again they had dogs they had possibly pigs though uh, from what I can understand the, the evidence that they had domesticated pigs is very much up for debate. In some cases, they have um, uh, evidence that they may be more wild varieties. Uh, but they do have, of course, uh, broom corn millet, at least at the oldest levels, the levels we're talking about, which is around 6500 or I'm sorry six thousand five hundred uh, BC BCE um they had uh, grinding slabs which were very similar to the pelagon culture though there are some of the sites in the huli sphere that might be closer to the sea shan um, now it doesn't take too much of a geographer to look at a map and say hey um, these sites are all fairly close to each other and you know the yellow river is right there It'd be very easy for someone upriver to get on a boat and sail downriver um to you know to these huli people uh sailing upriver might be a little bit more of a problem but you know take it make of that what you will um now there are a large number of huli sites i think there's over i think there's over a dozen i think 13 or 15 somewhere in that range um and they're all kind of, uh, they're kind of all s- scrunched together. Um, they don't have as much of a, I guess, a footprint as the Pelagong or the Seashan, um, or even as big as the Pangtoshan. So, um, if you think back to the Pangtoshan, Pe- uh, which is smaller than even the Seashan and the, um, the Pelagong, uh, region, uh, so it's very, it's very heavily concentrated um, compared to these other sites. And that might be due to the Yellow River itself. Again, uh, also sometimes called China's Sorrow. Uh, it could be very violent and traumatic and it can change course, especially in these early periods with uh, almost no warning for humans. So um, they may have been you know cognizant of that fact you know just trying not to move somewhere that they felt like it would be dangerous to live in uh, now for the name of the culture who uh, Lee uh, from what I could tell Lee as we learned earlier at least with the character that it's written with uh, means plum and ho can be a surname but also apparently um, ho is sometimes used as a head or Lord Uh, So it could be Lord of Plums. uh, Could be a way to read the name of the site. Um, At least, again, that's, you know, the modern name and what it was given for, you know, where it was initially found, where this culture was initially uh, dug up. Um, But, yeah, so uh, the... Let's see, make sure I got all my big notes out of the way uh i would like to go ahead and shout out the source for a lot of this um the primary one i used was a um it's from current anthropology uh, volume 52 uh which uh supplement four and it was written up by david joel cohen um, he kind of collated a lot of these uh facts i'm, I'm kind of quoting here. Um, and um it was very very helpful um there's some other stuff uh liu li uh which is the uh which is another big source um he did uh chinese neolithic um archaeology of china he, he's very he's a very big name in the field um and there were some others as well i think sarah allen from the formation of chinese civilization was another uh, as well as fin wong uh which is um he was a source for the Huli uh, culture. Um, now, how these are all related to each other, again, we've kind of talked about that, um, but I'd be willing to bet that uh, the Huli, um, the nanjong to, or I'm sorry, the Huli, the Sishan, the Pelagong, uh, they're all in some way related to the nanjuangto, at least in my estimation uh i say that because again they had access to uh millet uh, now i know there's a very big gap between the nanjuangto collapse and the um the emergence of these other cultures uh, again uh, twelve thousand years at the at the long end and you might be thinking well how if this culture collapsed or fell apart how do these places know how to do it? Well, you've got to remember that this is just what we found. Uh, there could be plenty of sites that remain undiscovered um, that, you know, appear after or maybe even are contemporary to Nanjuang uh, that we just haven't located. Or the Nanjuang did collapse, and they never bothered to kind of reestablish a sedentary Location, they could have migrated seasonally, or you know, every couple of seasons, lived out in nature as they had in the past. You know, camping with, um, you know, maybe uh, tents of leather or animal hide, or you know, a mix of that and sticks and wood and lumber, and you know, they may have lived in a place for a year or two, and then you know, planted these seeds while they were there, moved to another place, moved back in a year or two, and harvested, you know, the wild or semi-wild crops that they had left behind previously. And then, you know, after a while, they may have said, okay, well, these sites are really, you know, we, we won't have to work as much because these places are constantly growing what we planted. And then after a while, you know, they begin to establish, again, a sedentary a sedentary foothold or a sedentary site um and you know these it's possible that you know again these are not huge numbers of people living there just yet this might be something that you know specific families may manage for a period of time then they get to go off and leave and do their hunting thing while another family member family or extended family they're related to may move in and then they take care of the crops for a while and then they kind of take it in rotation. And then eventually, due to the success of growing things, they're like, all right, well, you know, this site's holding pretty well. Let's let's all just be here all the time. Um, So that is something that I think could have happened. And it's also very possible that we're just missing a lot of sites. you know, due to a number of factors. Uh, environmental changes, um, natural disasters covering up the evidence, or just, you know, humans moving in and tearing everything down. You've, you've got to remember archaeology is very good at finding things that uh, had a sustained presence. Uh, there's, <coughs> there's always the chance that, <coughs> excuse me, the uh, transition from, you know, away from the site like Nanjuangto. They had, you know, much less regular habitation at other places. Um, But, uh, yeah, we'll we'll go into that a little bit more detail when I talk about my domestication and urbanization episodes for the next season. Um, For now, though, I think this is a good place to call it. Uh, This has been a very long episode. I hope you guys have enjoyed. I hope I didn't ramble too much or make things too hard to follow. Um, But... uh, I hope you will join me next week. Um, we will, I'm going to do that episode where I talked about kind of talking about languages and who might be related to who, like in modern day. Um, so I hope you look forward to that. I don't think the next episode will be nearly as long. Uh, but once we do that, we'll continue and finish off um, Asia. Then we'll jump to. Um, Australia then we'll go to Europe and then we'll go to the Americas so um, yeah I hope you all again have enjoyed if you have any questions or feedback please feel free to reach out to me at my email address at waradrevpod at gmail.com you can also comment on any of my YouTube videos where I upload these uh, with just my logo in the background And, of course, you can also direct message me on Twitter. Uh, But, yeah, thank you all for joining me this week. I hope you've enjoyed, and I hope you'll be back next time. Thank you all. Have a good day. Goodbye.